Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a variety of fascinating guests discussing the human side and impact of crime, not only on their lives, but mine as well. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, please contact Lifeline or any other support, service or person that you feel comfortable with. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and not everyone will agree with them. I understand that and I hope you do too. Thank you. But on the seventh day, I just woke up and I felt different. Some weight had been lifted off my shoulders. The world just seemed rosier. The sun was shining brighter. And every day just seemed to get better and better. I said, I don't know what you've done to me. I feel a lot more like the old me. Today starts with an important warning. In the first 20 minutes, maybe, Rob talks very openly about his role in the Burke Street incident of January 2017, where a man deliberately drove his car into pedestrians just walking around town, meeting up with friends like so many of us do, shopping and maybe sitting on the the seats and watching the world go by. This man killed six innocent people and seriously injured 27. But there were many, many more that that incident uh, affected, including emergency service workers like Rob. It took around two years for the effects of this incident to really take a hold on Rob and he took time off to try and deal with the demons that he was facing on a daily basis. Rob returned to work and decided the alcohol that he was self-medicating with wasn't helping. But in giving up alcohol, those visions, the smells, those haunting memories all began to rise to the surface. And in seeking help through counselling, He found it was actually perpetuating these horrors in his mind. So he set about finding something different to try and ease this pain. And this is where he discovered NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, with Costa Nicolaitis. We talk in depth today about uh, not only Burke Street, but how Rob discovered NLP and how it just made him feel different. I think I recall it was just after one session with Costa. 
And Rob has now joined forces with Costa, a registered psychologist and fellow NLP master practitioner who's worked in the field for 29 years, working with everything from depression to schizophrenia and specialising in complex trauma, PTS and personality disorders. Rob and Costa together conducted an NLP trial where three former members and seven volunteers from the armed forces and the prison system agreed to take part in that trial. In the following weeks, we uh, talk with Costa and Neil, one of the volunteers who took part in the trial, to tell us about their experience with NLP and the amazing benefits it has produced. Uh, so until next week, take care. Have a good week. See ya. Uh, Rob, in 2017, uh, you were seconded to the homicide squad as if you haven't had enough to deal with, but you are seconded there to assist with the investigation into the Burke Street incident. And um, before we start this, uh, just, a, I suppose, a trigger warning for a number of people that have been involved in this. Rob's going to go into this in a bit of detail. Um, so, you know, if you need to go and have a cup of coffee and take uh, five or ten minutes out, please do. But whatever you feel comfortable with, Rob, can you tell us about being seconded and doing that job? Yeah, look, I, um, I remember the day of the incident because myself and another detective were actually walking down towards Burke Street. I can't recall what for, but we both heard police sirens like I'd never heard before that and we couldn't understand what was going on. So whatever our plan was, where we were going, we turned around and went back to the office because we knew something was going on uh, in the middle of the city and we didn't quite know what. So at the time we weren't armed, so we decided to go back and put some kit on and, and uh, just in case we needed because it just sounded bigger than anything that I had ever been involved in before. Um, yeah. We started monitoring the radio and were listening to this incident unfold and... Uh, we didn't attend the incident uh, that day, but we got seconded off to the, to the homicide squad shortly thereafter. Uh, and I remember on the first day when we arrived, the, our senior sergeant um, had pretty much said to us, look, there's a lot of footage of this incident. It's up to you whether you watch it or not. Uh, it's pretty horrific. Um, and so we were given the option of watching it. Um, I was given the task of uh, taking statements off people who had uh, been hit by the vehicle but had not uh, died as a result of their injuries but had some pretty horrific uh, injuries and, and life-changing injuries in, in a lot of the cases. Um, so, yeah, day by night, grabbed my folder and had a list of names of people that I had to go and visit in hospitals and start taking their statements and... And a lot of the um, people were still shaking their heads at that incident weeks later that did this really happen. It was just so unbelievable that somebody made the decision to do what they did. It, it really was like living in a bit of a, a time warp at the time. And, mm. But as I, the story was unfolding and we were, I was interviewing all these, these victims and seeing them in hospital in all sorts of horrendous conditions and, you know, Frames and body parts all over the place. It was, and 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 in most cases, their family were around them. So, you know, you were sort of dealing not just with the victim, but you're dealing with the emotions of the family as well. 
So I did that for the first three weeks and recognised that that I probably needed to be benched for a little while because I I couldn't get the images out of my head. So you watched the videos, did you? Well, a, a couple, just so that you knew what what you were dealing with and what yeah. to ask the people. I, I suppose know, I had to know where the victim was when they were hurt, who they were with, and so to do the job properly, viewing the footage um, was something that had to be done. And um, mm. you know, in some cases, some people don't even remember being hit. It, they literally walked out of a building straight into a moving car. Um, so some people had no recollection of the event uh, at all, which was, for me, was probably a, probably a good thing because we didn't yes. necessarily yeah. need their evidence in court because the whole thing was captured on CCTV and, you know, mm-hmm. iPhones. Uh, it was probably the most yeah. captured crime of the century. Mm-hmm. So I, I reached out to my senior sergeant and just explained that, you know, I think I needed a, a break, um, which she gave me, and uh, I, did, I think she tasked me with listening to um, James Gargasaurus's prison phone calls. So every day I'd come into work and I'd sit there and listen to him uh, talking. Uh, I think he generally made about five or six eight-minute phone calls per day. Um, so that was one of my jobs was to sit there and listen to that and make notes of what he was talking about because obviously there was evidence that was going to come out of some of his conversations, which a lot of the evidence as to his motivation did come out of those phone calls. So, okay. But yep. but listening to his uh, him talk about the incident in such a blase, uh, almost comical way that he, he felt about the incident and the notoriety he was going to get from it probably just made me even angrier. Um, so, yeah, so I, I really struggled to sleep after that for quite a while. I just kept reliving the images and then because I had a connection to the victims, by, you know, I was sitting with them sometimes a the whole day trying to take, take a statement in between nurses coming in and, you know, checking bandages and doing meds and all that sort of stuff. So I was spending a lot of time with these people and, and so I was putting those two frames together in, in, you know, at night when I was having you know, you know, a dream about it, think about it before I go to bed. It seemed to be the last thing I thought about for quite some time. And so I was just constantly reliving that memory uh, of what, what I'd seen and what I'd heard from the victims. Mm-hmm. You've obviously, there's just so many incidents that um, have affected you and, well, wouldn't they, <laughs> you you know, a normal human being. Um, um, when did you first notice that maybe you weren't managing too well? So was it before you went to, say, organised crime or before gaming and vice? Uh, how long ago did you do you think that something wasn't quite right? Yeah, I think about, for me, 2007, um, so that's two years after the Start of the death threats. Um, I remember driving to to Mildura to see a, a friend of mine up there, and I'd stopped in a country town somewhere at the back of Bendigo. I still can't remember the name of the town, and got out of the car and just had a break from driving because you know in the wee hours of the morning, and and I had this overwhelming sense of panic 
and I've never had it before. And I felt really vulnerable standing out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so for me, that became my first panic attack and I didn't understand it. I didn't know what was happening to me. And mm. I just stood there frozen and I actually flagged a car down and asked the people, where am I? I literally didn't know where I was. I just, it's like my brain just switched off. And so I continued the drive to uh, Mildura and the whole time it was just just sheer panic, uh, not knowing what was happening to me. I felt like I was having a heart attack. Um, I had no phone reception out there. I just had to keep driving, keep driving until I can get to Mildura. And I, went, and I drove straight to the hospital and just said, what's happening? What's happening? I don't understand it. So, so they gave me some medication to, just to calm me down. <clears throat> and so from that day, I realised all these things had built up um, mm. and I wasn't coping. But again, I didn't seek help. I continued on with policing. I continued on putting myself in dangerous situations and used alcohol to deal with it. That helped me sleep at night. Um, but the panic attacks sort of became more frequent and it became, uh, it began happening in situations where there was no need to panic. It was just this constant feeling of not being safe anymore. Um, yeah. And so that pretty much continued on uh, until I sought treatment in the last two years. And uh, yeah, so I, I pretty much batted on with it with policing and kept working and was busy the whole time and throwing myself into dangerous situations until about July 2019. And then I could sort of see my personality starting to change. I was always been a fairly laid back, you know, patient sort of a person and I'd started finding myself getting really easily upset. So I, I spoke to my boss at the time and just said, look, I think I need to take some time off. And he agreed, mm-hmm. he could see that things weren't, uh, I wasn't my usual self. And so I took a month off and I went and got some, uh, had some psychology and thought after four weeks, all right, I'm good to come back to work and threw myself back into it. Um, the unit I was working at was probably the busiest place I've worked in my entire career. Um, we were doing warrants pretty much every week. Um, and I continued on for another six months and then I decided in December 2019 to stop drinking because I was drinking uh, more than I needed to and I wasn't drinking for the right reasons. So I decided to stop drinking, and um, which I was uh, I did quite successfully, but that's when everything that I'd buried uh, rose to the surface and that's mm-hmm. when I realised that I really need help. Mm. Mm. there's a problem here <laughs> yeah gee I get that yeah and so that was the start of my, my recovery um, I did go back to work after that two weeks of leave and after uh, giving up alcohol for two weeks and I remember walking into the office on a Sunday afternoon there was nobody around I was the on-call uh, member for our team that afternoon and I walked in and threw my bag at my desk uh, sat on a chair and went to turn on the computer and just picked up my, picked up my bag, turned around and walked out the door. Mm. Just didn't have any energy. You just had a, 
you'd just had enough, had you? Yeah, had nothing left to give. Uh, I needed to start uh, concentrating on me and getting myself better. And the policing was going to take a, a back step, a backward step to that. So I pretty much walked out the door and never returned. And once I been away for a while I realised that there was no way I could return to policing it was just I just didn't have the energy I didn't have the mental capacity to deal with anything else until I recovered so mm. but that was a good day it was my worst day but it was also my best day because it put me on a path of uh, discovery and a bit of soul searching and finding other ways to, to cope and, and uh, alcohol wasn't part of that plan. So it was really a case of now just let all this stuff that's been, this trauma that's been hidden for so long come to the surface and deal with it. And that was probably the best decision I ever made. Most uncomfortable thing I've ever done, but the best decision. <laughs> yeah, I get that. And and how did you deal with it, Rob? Uh, I went down the traditional path with psychology and um, see a psychiatrist um, mm. for six months. I didn't really see much value in it as much as they were trying to help. Um, psychiatrist pretty much asked me what meds I wanted. I said none. Uh, I'm done self-medicating. Um, mm. And the psychology, I, I got to the point where going to the session was causing me more grief and stress than I was feeling better after it. So I I think I told her that I was feeling fine and thanks very much for everything you've done and I walked away from that as well. And then I set about trying to find another way of uh, getting better. And so I ended up doing, um, and the insurance company at the time were offering or had, were running a trial on alternative therapies and, of course, that was perfect timing for me because the psychology group wasn't working for me if anything it was probably making my situation worse and so I looked at anything I could do I I did art therapy I did qigong I did flotation therapy um mm-hmm. and started going back to the gym and, and doing a whole heap of things to try and help and, and it, it certainly kept me nice and balanced for a little while and things weren't getting worse Things weren't really getting much better, but I could see that if I continued down this path, that I would see some, you know, some success down the down the track. But then somebody suggested uh, getting a life coach, and I had no idea what a life coach did, and so I did some mm. research around that because remember I'm sitting at home doing nothing, so I had plenty of time on my hands, and so I started researching yeah. what life coaching would possibly offer me and. Um, discovered that a, a couple of the courses offered NLP training and that sort of triggered an interest. And when I looked at NLP, I got really interested in what that might be able to do for me. And um, So rather than hiring a life coach, uh, I thought, bugger this, I'll go and become one um, and mm. I can treat myself or get treatment uh, while I'm doing the course. And that's exactly what happened. I, I spent the next 14 months studying uh, life coaching and all the uh, the NLP courses that they offered and um, gave me a great understanding of how the subconscious mind stores trauma and um, it was 
just an eye-opener for me because once I understood how things were stored, memories were stored, it gave me an opportunity to remove some of those memories. And uh, I was lucky enough to meet a fellow student, um, Costa. And Costa had been a uh, psychologist for 29 years and he uh, was a big believer in NLP being more effective than psychology. So mm. that really surprised me and I thought, well, if he thinks it's good, yeah. I'm willing to try it. So, mm. um, and then Costa, who, he'd been working in the field of trauma for, for most of his career, um, decided to try and develop a NLP technique to deal with complex trauma. So where people have a lot of trauma, rather than going to a uh, NLP practitioner and dealing with one trauma at a time, you wanted to be able to tackle them all in one session. And, and, and I'm pleased to say that he's done that. Um, very smart man, uh, very dedicated, and is genuinely uh, wanting to get this message out to people to say there's another way of dealing with trauma. Uh, and I went through, uh, I was his first guinea pig, and I went through his technique. And uh, it took about six days, um, but on the seventh day, I just woke up and I felt different. Something, some weight had been lifted off my shoulders. Um, mm. The world just seemed rosier. The sun was shining brighter. Um, every day just seemed to get better and better. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. I, and I ran across and I said, I don't, know what, I don't know what you've done to me, 
Mm. But I feel different. I feel a lot more like the old mate. And so, yeah, um, yeah that was a, a path that I crossed, which I'm really glad I crossed because it's been such a benefit to my recovery. So can you tell us what is, so the traditional method, as I've said in my introduction, um, cognitive behaviour therapy, CBT, and that is about uh, talking about talking it out, getting it out of your head and um, sort of releasing it, I suppose, in a way. But as I said, not everybody is a talker like me. You know, I could... I could talk till the cows come home, but some people that's not comfortable. And NLP, well, actually, can I get you to explain what is the difference? What is NLP compared to, say, CBT therapy? Well, the first thing with NLP, especially this technique that Cost has developed, is you don't have to talk about your trauma, which is because for me with psychology, talking about it reaffirmed it to me every time I went to yep. a session. Um, yep. Whereas with NLP, they don't ask you to talk about the trauma. It's, it's irrelevant what the trauma is. They simply ask you to, to feel it. And the unconscious mind stores trauma in more a symbolic way. And Costa will explain this probably better than I will. I'll do it in mm. layman's terms. But the unconscious mind will store <laughs> trauma in some sort of symbolic way. So if I, if I was to say to somebody, think about the incident, uh, where do you feel it in your body? And they might say, you know, in the chest or they might say in the head or in the arm, whatever it is, uh, what does mm. it feel like? You know, is it, you know, does it have a colour? And the unconscious mind has all this information that you don't even know exists about mm. how it stored the trauma because it, it gives it its own, the trauma its own little code so it knows what, the, the trauma that looks and feels and smells like that, that relates to that particular incident. So it stores them all differently in, with different symbolic, um, in certain different symbolic ways so it can understand what differentiate between the two or three or four or whatever, how many traumas. And so as, as, as I feel it and I describe it to Costa uh, during the session, we symbolically take it outside the body and we put it somewhere else. And after we've done that for all the traumas, which, again, you don't need to talk about, you just need to think about it and feel it, and we rem we symbolically remove them uh, from the body and then Costa uh, asks, well, what would you like to create out of all this trauma? Trauma. What, what would you like to put in its place? And so you describe what it is. It could be your favourite holiday destination, it could be your best round of golf, whatever it is, you recreate uh, a memory to replace the trauma and symbolically put it back in the body uh, and somehow it works because what I created with my trauma is now my default program if I think about the trauma. And so the trauma doesn't have the same physiological impact on my body. I don't get the sweats. I don't get the heart palpitations. I don't get the anxiety around that particular trauma because my default program is now something that I created that I enjoy. And it sounds 
weird. That sounds crazy. It sounds like mumbo-jumbo. But the unconscious mind is incredibly powerful and Mm -hmm. the unconscious mind does whatever it can do to protect you. And so if this doing going through that process protects you from those feelings, then it's it's up for it's up to do that. So but again I'll let Costa explain the the nuts and bolts of it because this is his baby. Um, what yeah. I can say is it, it took my unconscious mind about six days to readjust to what I've done. But now it's my default program. And so I can think about a trauma now, but I don't get the same physiological reaction in my body as I used to. And that's that's what, I guess, scares people with trauma, is that feeling inside the body that you feel like you're losing control um, and you can't control your thoughts, whereas this process has allowed me to have uh, pleasant thoughts around my trauma. Mm. So, so I'm thinking now... Let's say I'll use me as an example. So with um, some terrible child abuse material that I've seen, so instead of me talking about what I'd actually seen, you know, this person does this, what Costa and what NLP concentrate on is let's say Costa would say, how how do you feel when you see that material, for instance? And I'd say something like, well, it's a real um, uh, a deep sadness, like say my heart feels really heavy or something along those lines. And so we would be talking about how it makes me feel rather than um, going through exactly what I saw. And then Costa would or you, would NLP then gets me to think about, I don't know, something I've, I love, let's say uh, walking on the beach, the, the feel of the water in on my feet, right? So when I think of the child abuse material, I would then instead of feeling or visions of what I've seen, I then default to well, hang on a minute, what about when I walk through that water and I feel the, the sea? And is that, have I sort of got that yeah, so <laughs> sort of? <laughs> it allows you to still think about what used to trigger you. It just doesn't trigger yes. you anymore because okay. you've now got a program that's associated to the trauma because yep. the, the brain creates neural pathways when we learn something. Um the brain will create it. Let's say, for example, you're learning how to ride a bike. Mm. You've got to do it several times before the brain actually has that connection in the brain that creates that pathway that now you don't have to think about it. It's an automatic program in your brain. It's mm. kind of like that's what Costa's doing through this process is he's retraining the brain or retraining that neural pathway to have a different um, mm. program hence the neuro-linguistic programming. And so if you do it often enough, it becomes your default program. Yes. And as I say, it's a, it's a it's something that Costa could probably explain a little bit more, but what I can say from my perspective is I don't have the same physiological reaction. I can think about things that I've seen over the years. I can think about the incident um, uh, back in 1998 
it used to, uh, when I thought about it, used to cause my heart to race so I would get sweaty. Uh, I'd have mm. trouble thinking about anything else but that. Now I can think about it quite comfortably. I can talk about it quite comfortably. If you'd asked me those questions about this incident two years ago, uh, I wouldn't have been able to tell that story without breaking down. I can do it now because it doesn't impact me. Yeah, yeah, okay. Do do you find a hesitancy when you flag, you know, trying a different method method to deal with trauma rather than the more traditional treatments that we've spoken about? I I had no hesitation. I I was in such a state that... uh, I was going to try anything. So yeah, but do you but do you find when you suggest this the NLP as a process, do you find people are hesitant in trying it because it is something different? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And look, you know, we we put out a call for volunteers, and I expected that we would be inundated uh, with people, and uh, we certainly got enough for the for the trial that we conducted. Um, and I think maybe some people, you know, the police have work on evidence-based things where it's all about the evidence. Um, for me, it was I just want to feel better. But definitely a lot of people um, might be swayed once they hear um, people who have been through the process talking about it and how it helped them. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So this is a really good exercise in uh, getting that message out there and it like CBT that wasn't for me, NLP may not be for everybody else. Some people may choose not to believe that it has the power to do what it does, and that's okay. Um, but for those who are willing to try it, um, you know, I think they'll be very surprised at, uh, at the results they'll get and give them just some sort of normality back in their life because when you're, you're in that state of reliving that trauma and that anxious state and that panic state all the time, Mm. you forget what normality is. So it's it's, it's really pleasant to come back to that. I call it my pre-policing state because I don't think I've ever been the same uh, in 33 years as I was before policing. That that definitely changes people. Um, Some people are lucky enough to get away with you know, being reasonably normal when they leave, but I think a lot of us aren't. Um, no, so this is, I would agree. Mm. This is a, a fabulous opportunity for people to try something, to try and get back to that pre-policing state. Yeah, you and I were talking um, in preparation for today and we both said that we really believe we started to change almost, well, I can, I know it was out at the academy. I always I loved what I did and I just wanted to, uh, throw myself into it, but I can see that I did. I did start changing pretty much the day I walked into the academy. And you said it wasn't all that long after the academy that uh, you realised, you know, that it was um, very, very um, triggering. So many things were happening. It was a different world, wasn't it? It definitely is because I had a reasonable uh, upbringing and hadn't been exposed to a lot of violence and trauma and, and when you're going through the academy and they're rolling out all these crime scene videos and crime scene photos are some of the most ghastly sights mm. and mm. this is what you're putting into your 
thought process that these are the things you're going to see and then you know to add to that you graduate and next thing you know you're knee deep in it uh, on a regular basis and and, and yeah. death was a very common part of our shifts um uh, you know over the years uh, been you know been to far too many fables and far too many murders and suicides to to want to think about so there's nothing normal about what we do um so it's not surprising i think if i look back now i can say yeah the, the trauma started at the academy that's mm. it's the nature of the beast yeah it is and and as uh, you said before somebody has to do the job don't they that vic pole um need to do but but they also need and not just vic pole i'm you know, emergency services in general, they need to learn how to manage the trauma load that members are exposed to constantly because, as you said, it's just the nature of the job. And our concern, your concern and mine and many others is that police are dropping like flies uh, and we need to do something. Um, What that is, I don't know but they need a lot more psychological support um, and alternatives, maybe speaking to someone or doing an NLP, I don't know, day or, you know, they, they need to do something more than what they're doing because what they are doing is not working. No, I think just the education around it, I, you know, if maybe at the academy they were, uh, they were given a... a lecture for somebody who's spent some time in policing who can say, this is what it does to you. Um, these are some of the things you can do now mm. uh, to, mm. to prevent that build-up. Because um, I think it's the build-up. I mean, some people can be have PTSD after one incident. Um, That's right. Policing, we keep adding and adding and adding to that pile um, and maybe maybe they, yeah, they need to be told on day dot, this is what's going to happen. Um, give people that option, but you know, you, you talk about look at Vic Pole. You know, it's an organisation. It's not a, it's not a person. So we can't expect the organisation to have feelings for us, um, because it's not a living entity. And I was quite surprised, and maybe I shouldn't have been, but I was quite surprised that after I stopped working, um, I had one phone call in two years from the organisation. It's terrible. And that really, that really blew me away. And so, again, we can't expect an organisation uh, to fix us when we're broken. They put up flyers and posters all around the place. Um, mm. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't help. They, they need to be a bit more proactive. The people who are running the organisation who are in charge need to do more rather than just putting up some flyers and hoping for the best because it doesn't work. And we're seeing the numbers of police and other emergency services personnel dropping like flies at the moment and will continue to do so until something's done. So I don't know what the answer is. I'm not an expert, and but I know what, no. what's working, what's not working is what's currently in place. Mm. Yeah, you're right. That that trial that you and Costa conducted, 
you've found 10 volunteers. Um, I think you said three were former Victoria Police members and there were seven from the armed forces uh, and the prison system and uh, not the inmates, actually, the prison officers uh, who agreed to the trial. Um, Just in closing, can you tell us, because next week we're going to talk to Costa and uh, Neil, one of those uh, volunteers, one of those members, but can you just tell us a little bit about the trial and the results of it, how it went? Yeah, so we had um, the plan was to do five sessions with with each um, volunteer. Not everyone... uh, remained in the uh, trial, Um, but everybody in the trial, uh, and and Costa does a um, pre and post um, uh, questionnaire around the PTSD scale, and Mm. so so of the 10, he was able to say that, that even though some didn't come back for their second, third or fourth or fifth session, they still had a 50% drop in their PTSD scale after one session. Wow, 50%. So so it's impressive. And again, I think it's it's talking to people who have been through it and um, like myself and and maybe I'm a little bit biased, I'll leave it up to others who have been through the trial, but, but certainly from my perspective, it was a game changer for me because I can I can still think about those incidents now, but I don't have the reaction uh, to them like I used to, and that's that means I can get on with life. Uh, I can get back to being a normal person that I was pre-policing. So, mm. um, and that doesn't happen overnight. I've, I've got a lot of uh, thirty-three years. There's a lot to undo there, but I know that that I'm slowly getting back to the, to the person I was beforehand uh, in terms of my mental health. So, so it's certainly been a worthwhile exercise and it was, it was, I was very proud to be part of um, that trial. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think next week, speaking to Costa and Neil, um, you'll get a lot more uh, information and hopefully some members um, or anybody out there who, who thinks they can benefit from it um, Give it a try. Yeah, look, and and thanks for that, Rob. And in closing, I I can only say I'm sorry the Victoria Police and the community in general lost the services and experience of such a um, compassionate and dedicated detective like yourself. However, you are now giving uh, those who are going through dealing with the traumas they've been exposed to another option for them to try and really I, I think what's there to lose. It's just another way of dealing with trauma, which might just work for those who haven't been able to find the peace that they're they're searching for. And as you said, next week uh, we hear from Costa and uh, his foray into NLP and what and how he and yourself um, may be able to help um, when, you know, People think that there's nothing more that you can do or try to help with those uh, traumatic thoughts like the visions, the nightmares, the smells, <laughs> the triggers, just for starters. And uh, as you said, we also chat with Neil, um, who was one of the uh, members who volunteered to take part in the trial. So, uh, Rob, thank you uh, from me and from everybody that you've helped and hopefully you help in the future. And for everyone out there, have a great week and we'll chat next week. Terrific. Thanks, Doral.
Thank you, Rob. As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression, I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. <laughs> Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.